Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co-host, Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. And Eric, it's just been another ordinary humdrum week for the both of us, really, hasn't it? I mean, I'm hunkered down in Reykjavik, Iceland, while a fierce wind rages outside. And, you know, I think later on, perhaps when we've done recording this, I may venture out to investigate the Icelandic Penis Museum, uh, which, to anticipate your question is a Icelandic museum about penises, not a museum about Icelandic penises. I know you were you were wondering about yeah. that. And and for you too, similarly normal, uh, since we last recorded a podcast, your son has officially become a man. So uh, mazel tov, I suppose, and uh, nothing out of the ordinary for either of us then. So I, I don't know if I should take it as a sign that your Iceland trip has been uneventful if you're leading with talk of a penis museum you haven't even <laughs> been to yet. Or, or maybe it's just a sign that you know our audience and what's likely to interest them. Maybe that's what it's a sign of. Yeah, well, it was. Well, I could get into the, some of the excitement of the uh, the Arctic Circle Conference, but which actually did end up being a little bit spicy because mm. um, the war in Please Ukraine... Please tell me, I'm hoping there was like a Michael Katz, Ron Borges type of brawl going on there. <laughs> well, almost, between mm. the Chinese ambassador to the Arctic Arctic and the representative of NATO. It got a little bit spicy Ooh, actually right. at the end. And oh, actually, excuse me, it was the Chinese ambassador to, to Iceland, and then the Chinese representative to Arctic start to the Arctic started saying things like, "Well, we're not going to recognise the Norwegian chairmanship of the Norwegian of the Arctic Council next year if Russia isn't allowed." you know, to mm. start attending meetings again, to which everybody booed and said, well, it's not your business. You're not an Arctic nation. Sod off. So it got very, it got very spicy. <laughs> I guess so. It's all relative mm. what qualifies as spicy. Right. But yeah, that's spicier than one might have expected at a yes, little bit of industry shenanigans. Yeah. Yes. So there you go. Um, all right. Well, not, Meanwhile, not by <laughs> yes, not quite as spicy over here. Just a just a boring weekend in the good old U.S. of A. Uh, as uh, Eli now has to move out of the house and get a job. Uh, so, <laughs> right, yeah. right. No, but the the bar mitzvah was great. He did great. I am glad the stress is over uh, for him it, or for you. <laughs> for but for both of us, for all of us. Uh, but uh, you know, it it will return when I see the next credit card statement. But uh, in between now and then, the stress is over. Uh, but no, I'm, I'm thrilled that it went well and it's uh it's done and now i can properly watch phillies playoff baseball without scheduling conflicts um you know just nice. just as you know you're in Reykjavik and your lead story is penis museums i'm coming out of bar mitzvah <laughs> weekend focused on my baseball team right right maybe you need to like lay some good winning bets so that you can actually pay for your credit card bill <laughs> well yes the problem is bets are not guaranteed to win and oh, then right, there is that and then then we have something called debt building up so we don't want that. ah yes right roger this this is why i'm really never going to be anybody's financial manager <laughs> least of all my own right <laughs> well we might as well get on with our job i suppose i suppose Actually, that's yes. one way to pay off the bills right. and this week on the podcast we have a showbox card to preview and when we have a showbox card to preview uh, we love to call upon executive producer gordon hall to help break down the matchup so gordon uh, in a one-on-one -on -one segment with eric Flying solo during the interview segment uh, this week due to my Icelandic schedule making me unavailable for that bit of the show. Um, he'll join the podcast shortly to do just that. Uh, we also have news to cover involving such noteworthy names as Tyson Fury, Teofimo Lopez and Connor Ben. And we'll conclude the show with my countdown of the top five active boxers I'd like to see get their shot at the broadcast table. Uh, but first, as we've been complaining about for weeks... Boxing's promoters counter-programmed my and Eric's busy weekends with several major Saturday cards. Harumph. 
So uh, let's break those down and let's start with by far the briefest of our main events, courtesy of a fighter who is no stranger to brief fights, Deontay Wilder. Um, Wilder took on Robert Hellenius atop a Fox pay-per-view card on Saturday as he returned to the ring for the first time since losing to Tyson Fury 12 months earlier. It was Deontay's fifth time headlining at Barclays Center in Brooklyn. It became his fifth KO win in the building and his second first round KO at Barclays. Uh, One punch did it, as it so often does with Wilder. Hellenius walking into a short, straight right hand and going down on his back and out at 2.57 of the opening round. Wilder improves to 43-2-1 with 42 KOs, and that's 43-0 and with 42 KOs against people not <laughs> yes. called Tyson Fury. Hellenius drops to 31-4 and with 20 KOs. Eric, we have only 177 seconds of action to analyze, but do your best. Any takeaways from what we saw from Wilder against Hellenius? And is this a knockout of the year contender in your view? Uh, to quickly answer the latter question first, uh, it could be somewhere among the honorable mentions, but it wasn't even the best knockout on this card. So, uh, you know, more on that <laughs> one shortly. But uh, nah, good good KO, not quite KO of the year material. Uh, but I do think there are a few takeaways here, despite how quickly this was over. The main one is that Wilder simply can't help but knock dudes out. Um, yeah. He really may be the most heavy-handed freak of nature puncher in the history of boxing. He spent most of the round moving and circling more than we've ever seen him do before. He wasn't going after Hellenius. He wasn't trying to land heavy punches. He was just trying to get comfortable for a round. (laughs) I was just about to type in my notes, feel out opening round, when suddenly Hellenius walked into the right hand, and that was that. And the crazy thing is... And it became Hellenius out opening round. (laughs) Get in. Yeah, wait, sorry. Carry on. Wait, oh, instead of feel out Hellenius. Ooh, wow. Yes. That was that was so bad that uh, dad joke Raskin didn't even process it at first. Wow. Sorry. Well, <laughs> Back go. to the drawing right, board. I'll, I'll, sh- I'll shut up. Yes. <laughs> well, it is a podcast. You, 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 you are expected to speak some. Don't I'll shut up entirely. My, I'll, just, I'll just wait my turn. Okay, that's that's reasonable. Right. Um, so I was going to say that, that uh, before you interrupted with your attempted humor, uh, that uh, the the crazy thing about the punch was it, it didn't look at all like Wilder's Sunday punch, um, even though it was Sunday because the friggin' main event ring walk started at 12.15 a.m. Eastern. Uh, it, it still was not his Sunday punch. Uh, he, he didn't have his weight behind it. He was almost leaning back against the ropes. I I guess he was sort of springing off of them just a bit, but he was still partially on the back foot as he threw it, and boom, it landed. That was it. Um, You know, we had that annoyingly late 12-15 ring walk, but the fight was over at 12-25, so (laughs) thank you, Deontay Wilder, for that. Uh, The other thing I think we can analyze here, not so much a boxing thing, but a mental state thing, In the build-up to this fight, as well as in his interview after the fight, Deontay seemed in a really good place. He was positive. He was pleasant. The surly, conspiracy-minded, seemingly losing his grip Deontay that we saw throughout the last couple of years with the Fury saga, he's gone, at least for now, and that's great to see. This is the best version of Deontay Wilder, even if, okay, sure, Hellenius ain't much. Wilder only landed three punches in the fight. Uh, it wasn't the most meaningful win, but it was still the best version of Deontay that we could have asked for. Um, how about you? Anything to add about the fight? And uh, Wilder mentioned two names afterwards, Oleksandr Usyk and Andy Ruiz. The latter seems much more likely to happen next, but 
what's your interest level in either of those as an early 2023 fight? Well, first of all, to add to your comment about about Deontay um, outside of the ring, just before we started recording this, I saw a video, and I don't know if you've seen it, of him visiting Hellenius in his hotel room. No, I haven't um, seen it. It was super, super nice. The two mm. just engaging in a really, really long embrace. Wilder checking with him, saying, look, I'm sorry. You know, I hope you're oh. okay. And Helenia saying, I'm sorry I couldn't give you a big fight, a proper fight. <laughs> right. And Wilder's like, no, man, you did great. And Helenia sort of saying, I'm 38 years old, man. I'm done with this nonsense. Um, it was just really, really nice. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, that, that absolutely adds to all of that. Um, yeah, and, and also to follow on from your comment about the punch, I, it might have been the shortest, fastest fight ending punch i've ever seen wilder throw like we're so used to him getting full extension on his right. booming straight hands and, and overhand rights but honestly it was so quick i actually had to watch the replay a couple of times just to see exactly what it was that did the damage um yeah like you said i mean we've talked before i think on the podcast about is he actually the biggest puncher in boxing history and uh, you have to be pretty brave to say he isn't at this point i think it's just it's just ridiculous is his power um and yeah, and as for future matchups, look, he might struggle to land a big shot on Usyk, but what would happen when one does get through? If he can do that also with just short punches as well, it's, mm. I mean, that's why, you know, you have to, even if he's a dog in a fight, you're always going to have to make him a live dog. Um, I prefer to see him up against Andy Ruiz first of, of the two options that you suggested, simply because that would hopefully mean that Usyk and Tyson Fury are getting right. it on. Um, and that's really what we want to see. So that, you know, if Wilder were to face Usyk after that, if Usyk beat Fury, it would be, you know, more significant. But um, um, one final note, though, I, I do hope that Wilder actually does get proper credit for this. I know people wrote off Hellenius as having any chance at all, um, and many people expected this very result. But there was a chance, you know, especially coming off those battles with Fury, that Wilder would have some uncertainty, that, that he would have some insecurity there in the ring, that Hellenius although not all that much, might actually be able to pressure him into some mistakes and make him awkward, you know. And, and Wilder put a legitimate, if limited, heavyweight to sleep. And I, and I do hope he gets the proper credit for that. Um, as for the pay-per-view undercard, uh, it provided one mild upset, one spectacular knockout, and all in all some decent entertainment for the pay-per-view dollar. Um, one unusual coincidence. All three undercard fights ended in or immediately after the ninth round. Uh, it started with bantamweight Emmanuel Rodriguez outboxing Gary Antonio Russell in dominant fashion and winning by unanimous technical decision after the fight was stopped due to a ninth round clash of heads. Uh, then heavyweight Frank Sanchez remained unbeaten when he stopped Carlos Negron in the ninth, dropping him with a big right and forcing a stoppage soon thereafter. And in the co-main, Caleb Plant, in his first fight training with our buddy Breadman Edwards, scored a one-punch left-hook knockout of Anthony Durrell in round nine. A spectacular finish to what had been, to that point, a more bark-than-bite affair between two guys who do not like each other. All right, let's go lightning round style, since we still have a lot of other fights to get to. Give me your quick thoughts on each of these undercard fights. Sure, I'll go in order, starting with uh, Rodriguez-Russell. Boy, what a terrible year it's been for the Russells. Um Gosh. I've never seen Rodriguez box this smoothly in, in the handful of times we've seen him. He had Russell totally outclassed. He just had no answers, and I uh, was getting wobbled repeatedly. He got dropped at the very end of the eighth round, which 
created some confusion as ref Benji Estevez sent him to the corner to, quote, give him his minute to recover, even though the bell hadn't rung, but it should have rung by then. It it got a little confusing, but uh, the next round, the heads clashed, and they stopped it officially two seconds into the 10th, and then the judges' scores reflected them having scored the 10th round, which is ridiculous because it was two seconds that didn't even, there was no touching of gloves or anything in the 10th round. But thankfully the fight wasn't close and it didn't matter that they had to score that 10th round. Um, Sanchez Negron, you know, the first couple of rounds, Sanchez was a little more aggressive than usual and it seemed to promise some excitement, but it quickly turned into heavyweight tedium right up until Sanchez landed the big right hand and left everyone feeling positive about his performance He's lurking in the heavyweight picture. Mm. I I don't think I see a future top five heavyweight there, but I'm curious to see him step up a level and show us what he's got. Lastly, Plant Durrell. Now that was a serious knockout of the year candidate, (laughs) and it came from an unexpected source. I I really didn't expect to see Caleb Plant turning a good fighter's lights out. Very happy for Breadman to see him getting off to this great start with Plant. But I hope he'll sit Caleb down and talk to him about what he did immediately after the KO. Um, Now, I know there was bad blood here, but this was in really poor taste, pantomiming, shoveling dirt on his grave while the other guy is down and out. You know, it's one thing to do it in the moment for two seconds. It's another to have someone pull you away and, and, and be the adult in the room, and then you run over to the ropes and keep doing the gesture over and over toward the crowd. If Darrell had been seriously hurt, then Caleb Plant is the asshole of all assholes for doing that. I don't know if Plant is like consciously trying to build up heel selling power or something like that, but you you just don't do that. You, you can celebrate your win while the guy is out cold, you know, jump up on the ropes, Mm. pump your, put your arms up in the air, but you don't taunt specifically with death related gestures in a sport where people do actually die sometimes. Um, you know, at least wait and see if the guy is okay. Uh, There's a code in boxing. There are standards of etiquette and, to me, sorry if I'm the old guy who just doesn't get it or whatever, mm. but this was over the line, and, and my guess is that Breadman probably feels the same way. This is all about him staring you down in the media room, <laughs> isn't it, a few years ago? I'll, ne- I'll never forgive him. He's on my uh, shit list ever <laughs> since then. No, but uh, I, see, that's the thing. He clearly has like a little bit of a mean streak yeah, in him. he does. Yeah. And not that he was like getting mean with me, but he gave me the death right. stare for having bet against him and, and gave me a bit of a lecture for having done it. And so, yeah, it came out here again and not in a good way. Yeah, I don't think it's a calculated effort. I think it's just his natural super mean streak. I, I think mm-hmm. he does have that. He's got that nasty streak. And and I'm with you, right? Like, I, I'm all about cutting fighters slack in the immediate aftermath of, of of a win, especially, you know, like a knockout win or something like that. But it's, yeah, it's when he went back to it afterward mm-hmm. and then just kept going, doing, um, it's like, yeah, come on, dude. Um, so I, I agree with you. But, uh, um, yeah, and as for... Uh, Russell and Rodriguez, I guess, one way or the other, their fights are going to end with he- head clashes. <laughs> yes. and, uh, <laughs> and I'm sure maybe in hindsight, Russell would have been happy if it had ended in the first round again. But right. uh, yeah. yeah, indeed, a great performance there. Yeah. All right. So that was Saturday's late show in Brooklyn. Saturday's early show took place in London. Uh, we and others build it as the biggest and or best event in women's boxing history. Let's begin with the main event. Uh, in about for all the middleweight gold, Clarissa Shields avenged the only loss of her boxing life. She lost once in the amateurs to Savannah Marshall, but in the pros, 
Shields proved a notch above over the course of a close, fast-paced fight, winning on Marshall's turf by scores of 96-94 and 97-93 twice. Claressa is now 13-0, while Marshall drops to 12-1. Kieran, what did you think of the fight and the scores, and is there any scintilla of doubt now that Claressa is indeed the quote? Does she have any rivals for that title? There hasn't really been much doubt in my mind for a while and there's no doubt whatsoever now i mean look two olympic gold medals undisputed champion in a four belt era and not just one not two but three weight divisions i mean it's incredible now granted her predecessors didn't have a lot of those you know opportunities particularly the olympic opportunities but still i mean i think that you know the quality of shield's work and her skill and her talent more than a match for for any woman who's ever set foot in the ring i mean you've got the others that you would really mention in that in that sort of elite status you've got christy martin lucia Riker, regina halmick Layla ali but none of them had the list of achievements that claressa has and, and honestly i don't know that any of them had her skill set either um the one thing that Claressa Shields is missing, the only thing, is a knockout punch. Uh, if she had that, that fight with Marshall wouldn't have made it to the scorecards, right. given how many times she tagged her cleanly. But her hand speed and combinations are first rate. And how about her defensive work? Her, I mean, teaming up with John David Jackson, we've talked about this before, but it seems to have been the final piece in the puzzle for her. The two of them clearly mesh. And, and over those last several fights that he's been with her, he's been able to help bring her to a whole other level. Her upper body movement, um, her countering off the ropes, I mean, all that just absolutely first rate. I mean, I thought going in that there were two possibilities, that Marshall's power might prove definitive or that Shields would just show her inherent superiority and, and, and give her a boxing lesson. And it was the latter. Um, although, you know, Marshall's power and strength certainly extracted their pound of flesh, particularly during the second half of the fight. Um, I scored it 97-93 for Shields. Uh, I gave her the first five rounds plus rounds eight and ten. Um, I think this might have been her biggest and best performance yet, even eclipsing her, her domination of Christina Hammer. And honestly, it's at the point now where I don't know what else she has to prove or achieve. I don't want her to retire. She's not talking about retiring, and I hope she doesn't retire. But if she did, she's already done more than enough to cement her legacy and just sail into the Hall of Fame. Um, as uh, Rob Tebbett, formerly of Boxing Social and now the founder of ID Boxing, tweeted in one of my two tweets of the week this week, hmm. during the fight, Clarissa Shields is fucking good, man. <laughs> Yes. Yes, she is. <laughs> That's the tweet of the week. Yes. See, now you're ju- now you're going to be encouraging all of our listeners just to swear <laughs> in their tweets, tweets, thinking that that's what's going to get them in. This sets a bad precedent, Kieran. Eh, does it, though? <laughs> I guess not. You know what? Yeah, we could. We, we our show could probably use more curse words. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. One thing that I come out of this thinking about is just what a fascinating debate right now for the top three pound for pound in yeah. women's boxing. Like pretty clearly it's Claressa Shields, Amanda Serrano and Katie Taylor in some order, any order, and then a nice drop off to, to number four. Um, but yeah, I'm totally with you on, on the quote thing. If you're including pro and amateur accomplishment, she is the indubitable quote. Um, and as for the scoring right before they announced the scores, I jotted down best scores would be either 6-4 or 7-3 shields. And all three judges nailed it. They were, it was all 6-4 or 7-3. So, uh, yeah, tremendous win for her. Um, the co-feature, 
a unification of most of the belts at 130 pounds, saw Alicia Baumgartner pull off a minor upset over U.S. Olympian Michaela Mayer, winning a split decision at the end of 10 rounds, with Mayer up 97-93 on one card, but the other judges both having it 96-95 for Baumgartner. The fighter from Detroit known as The Bomb is now 13-1, and uh, Mayer's first defeat, the scoring of which she very much did not agree with, drops her to 17-1. and There was not as much sustained action in this fight as there was in Shields Marshall. On the ESPN broadcast, Tim Bradley seemed a little disappointed that this wasn't more of a slugfest, whereas Andre Ward enjoyed the professionalism and technical skills. Who do you side with, Kieran, and how did you score it? I was more in Andre's corner here. Uh, I really enjoyed the technical skills on display. I, I thought it was a real quality prize fight. I was making a note to that effect just a few rounds in. Um, and I thought the right person won it. I scored it for Alicia Baumgartner, 96, 94. Uh, although some rounds were certainly close and tough to score. Uh, I, Mayor simply took too long to get going in my book. I, I thought Baumgartner won it really in the first four rounds. Um, it's a little interesting to note that to judge from social media, a few folks watching in the UK thought Mayer got hosed, whereas most folks watching on ESPN had a similar score to mine. Um, and if I understand it correctly, I think the Sky Sports team, broadcast team, had Mayer winning, um, which underlines once again that however much people insist it isn't the case, when you watch on TV or on a stream, you are often, even subconsciously, influenced by the commentary. And, you know, given the spread of the scorecards, maybe it was just one of those fights that there were enough close rounds that you could see it for, for either boxer. Personally, I struggle to see Mayer winning seven rounds, but... You know, some people, especially watching in the UK, saw Mayer winning seven rounds. Um, the thing I hate most about the scoring is that two of the judges had a 10-10 round, but there it is. Um, I, I thought it was a close fight. I thought it was an intelligently contested fight. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I was very impressed with the chess match elements of it, the adjustments that both boxes made throughout the contest, and, and uh, I'd be more than happy to see it again. Yeah, I, so the, the scoring was interesting here in that, at least on my card, it was a tale of ping-ponging momentum. I had mm -hmm. the first three for Baumgartner, the next three for Mayer, the next two for Baumgartner, and the last two for Mayer. So I ended up at 95-95. Could have gone either way. Had no strong feelings after it was over about who deserved to win. But Mayer definitely struck me as way too confident that she was ahead. And yes. while awaiting the decision, way too confident that it was going to go her way. Now, I know it's really hard to judge a fight while you're in it, but... I wonder if she'll watch this back and say, mm. oh, yeah, I left it pretty close. I should have pushed a little harder or started a little sooner. Um, and, of course, Baumgartner said, that girl ain't getting no rematch. Um, <laughs> but I'm with you. I want to see a rematch. I'm guessing the right financial offer will make her change yeah. her mind. This, this fight definitely warrants a rematch. Agreed. Uh, one more fight card to talk about in Melbourne, Australia. Devin Haney and George Cambosos rematched for the lineal lightweight title. And if there was a year-end award for most predictable outcome, this would be the frontrunner for 2022. <laughs> this was more or less a repeat of their first fight. Haney just way too fast and skilled. Cambosos tried. He battled through a lot of blood, but he just couldn't get much done. And Haney retained the championship after 12 rounds by scores of 118-110 twice and 119-109. He's now 29-0. Cambosos is 20-2. I said last week, Kieran, that I was thinking Cambosos' win over Teofimo Lopez could well be reassessed as a fluke. Would you agree with that? I, I guess what I'm asking is, how much are two wins for Haney over Cambosos worth? Do you have a stance right now on just how good or possibly great 
Devin Haney is? Um, I do think you're correct to reassess Cambosis' win over Lopez. Um, But, you know, at the same time, yes, Lopez was extremely unwell, which was not Lopez's fault, and consumed by outside of the ring issues, which was somewhat Lopez's fault. But Cambosis still had to take his shot, and he did that, and no one can ever take that away from him. He showed guts and resilience and determination on that night. But if he and Tiafimo fought another 10 times with both perfectly healthy and focused, uh, I'd pick Tiafimo probably to win them all. but that said, I still can't quite get a handle on where Haney stands in the grand th- scheme of things. Um, the thing with Haney is there does sometimes appear to be a kind of diffidence to him in the ring. It felt like he was a, a little bit more determined to, to make something of an impression this time around. But nonetheless, it's so often it feels as if he's doing what he needs to do but doesn't feel like he has to do more than that. Um, He doesn't appear to have the killer instinct of, of, say, a Terence Crawford or in his own weight class, a Javante Davis. Um, And yet, when he set me the task of coming up with my ideal Four Princes matchups a few weeks back, I think Haney was the only one who was only in there once. But as I noted then, styles make fights. And even though it kind of... Obviously, he is the legitimate champion of the weight, but I... Even though I would rank him behind Lomachenko and Lopez, although Lopez has gone 140, and Davis, styles make fights, and he just might have the style to beat them all. Um, I would not be shocked if, should any of them ever eventually get round to locking horns, <laughs> he is the one who stands tall at the end of it. Uh, it's, I just think he might have a very, very difficult style to beat. Um, and talking of that, with Lopez now at 140, um, and Javante Davis and Ryan Garcia uh, seemingly trying to work out a deal for a fight, that leaves Lomachenko uh, as the big opponent that Haney is talking about. Is that the fight that will answer the question you just asked me about how good Haney really is? Yeah, I mean, there are a few theoretical fights among those names you just mentioned that could tell us a lot, but Loma is the one that seems likely to happen if he beats Jermaine Ortiz in two weeks. And if Haney defeats him, even if it's razor close, like Teofimo's win over Loma was, that would answer most of the questions and, and almost certainly put Haney in my pound-for-pound pound top 10. Mm. It's a totally different style from Cambosos, a much higher level of test, despite the fact that Cambosos beat Lopez, who beat Loma. Mm. Haney versus Loma is pretty darn close to a 50-50 fight right yeah. now, in my view. So it answers questions about both of them. You know, is Loma still elite at age 34? And does Haney join the elite at what would be age 24 by the time the fight could happen? I love it. I hope Mm. that comes together. I hope Davis Garcia comes together. The Four Princes era dream could start to become a reality. Um, (laughs) But anyway, I'm glad that Haney can move on from Cambosos now. You know, let Cambosos go in another direction, too, and try to reprove himself and let Haney move on to bigger and better. It's still quite amazing that Devin Haney's only 24 years old. Yeah, um, he's not even yet. He's only 23 as of now. Incredible. He'll be 24, I believe, next month. Yeah. Incredible. Um, by the way, I mentioned I had a second tweet of the week. Uh, mm-hmm. It comes from Chris Lloyd at Chris Lloyd TV of The Zone, who tweeted in the glowing aftermath of Shields Marshall, okay, now all that remains is a combined 39 minutes for Haney, Cambosis, and Wilder Hellenius. <laughs> and in fact, it was 38 minutes and 57 seconds. And that oh. shows where he knows. Yeah, he knows nothing. <laughs> Wow, that's amazing. That's unbelievably prescient. <laughs> right? Wow. All right. See, yeah, I, you know what? 
if we have to choose between an incredible prediction that was off by three seconds and a tweet that's only notable because of dropping F-bombs, I'm I'm saying that uh, your runner-up should have been the tweet of the week. Not that I have the right to overrule. I'm just sharing my opinion. That would have been my tweet of the week among the two. Very well. Okay. okay. What if it's an amazing prediction with an F-bomb? That's well, like a golden tweet. Now, yeah. That's now tweet that, of the year. Tweet of the year, yes. <laughs> Great. Now all our listeners are just going to throw a prediction out there with a few F-bombs, and if one happens to hit, then, right. then we have to give it tweet of the year. It's fine by me. Okay. <laughs> all right. Uh, we now turn our attention to this coming weekend's fights. And the biggest televised card is Friday in Atlantic City as Showbox returns to Bally's for the second time in six weeks. Joining the podcast now to break it down is the executive producer of Showbox, the man I've called a human box rack machine, Gordon Hall. Gordon, thanks so much for coming on the podcast once again. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate you uh, having me back. I'm, I'm, that must have meant that I didn't say anything too bad the last time. So uh, glad to be back. As far as I was concerned, and Kieran, of course, who's not here for this interview, as far as he was concerned as well, you said nothing but brilliant things. And obviously, yes, nothing that uh, anyone above you would fire you over as well. So uh, a win-win, I think. Thanks. So um, let's start with the, the opening bout on this card. No showbox card would be complete without at least one battle of unbeatens. And uh, this one has undefeated heavyweights scheduled for eight rounds, 12-0, and 0, Elvis Garcia versus 8-0-1 Moses Johnson. Garcia has a strong amateur background, very promotable as a heavyweight of Mexican descent. Uh, Johnson, I see, is, is the bigger man, figures to outweigh Garcia by some 20 to 30 pounds on the scale. And what really stands out is they both have high knockout percentages. So is this a don't go to the fridge kind of heavyweight fight in your view? And, and what are you expecting stylistically here? Well, I, I think that um, Garcia is a fighter that comes forward. Um, Garcia is also a fighter that we were going to have on our uh, Hall, in, uh, Hall of Fame weekend uh, show earlier this year against George Arias. That fight ended up falling through. So to get him back, to get a look at him, um, like you mentioned, he is a fighter that had um, some significant amateur career, though he did come to boxing late as he started out as an MMA fighter wanted to work on his striking ability, took boxing up and then fell in love with it. He won mm. 85 and 10, you know, as an amateur, he went to the national three times winning two bronze and a silver. So he has credentials that certainly are desired of a fighter to be on Showbox. And, uh, you know, the heavyweight divisions, you know, up in the air, you know, albeit we see, you know, uh, Deontay Wilder's great knockout last night coming back into it, but we've also seen Joshua lose. So he is somebody that I think is worth a look and does have a, uh, a, a pleasing style. Uh, you know, in Moses Johnson, and I must, I must also say that Elvis Garcia is promoted by Lou DiBella. Okay. And, you know, Lou's not going to sign somebody unless he thinks he has some sort of, uh, you know, route to become a contender. In uh, Moses Johnson, again, another uh, fighter that started late to boxing. Uh, you know, he is 8-0-1, but he does have seven KOs. He is a bit of a puncher. Uh, he was a New York, uh, New York Golden Gloves champion. Uh, you know, both these guys are 6'3", 6'2". They're not small heavyweights, so they're sort of keeping up with what uh, the larger and the new heavyweights are uh, looking like. Um, you know, I saw his last fight, uh, you know, he worked behind his jab. Well, he put his punches together. 
Uh, so I think this is just, uh, you know, we consider ourselves a proving ground. Let's have these two get it on. Um, you know, the, the general public likes heavyweights, so let's have them on and, and see what they have. All right. Uh, in the middle of the three bouts on this triple header, uh, in an eight rounder at 154 pounds, Marlon Harrington against Marquise Taylor, uh, a slightly higher combined age here than we usually see with showbox prospects with the undefeated Harrington 30, the once beaten Taylor 28. Uh, Taylor has two televised draws on his resume, one of them on showbox against Paul Kroll. He also has only one knockout among his 12 wins. So, does this have the makings of another close one for Taylor? And and what are the chances that Harrington with, with seven KOs among his eight wins becomes the first maybe to stop him? Well, I think Marquise Taylor is an interesting fighter. Uh, I was hesitant in the past to put him on Showbox. He came in as what we would, I guess, the, the underdog against Paul Kroll in his last appearance on Showbox. Paul Kroll was an extremely highly regarded uh, blue chip prospect that had been signed by top rank. Um, but Taylor for being 12, um, you know, 12, one and two and only one KO, he doesn't fight like that. If you were just look at his record, you say, this guy's going to be a mover. He's going to be a slickster. He is a, a very exciting fighter. He's been known as a spoiler as he's beaten three undefeated, you know, fighters, um, and coming in as the underdog, and, you know, he was a high, he was, you know, Paul Kroll highly regarded. So, um, you know, the, the, the draw that he had against Paul Kroll, our own Steve Farhood scored that fight 97-93 in favor of Taylor. Right. And it was a draw. So, you know, we look to bring fighters back to Showbox should they have a good performance, um, you know, whether it be a, a win, a loss or a draw. So in this case, uh, Taylor has a pleasing style. He's very busy. He tends to outwork and outbox his opponents and, and makes for, like you say, close and um, in, in, ex in exciting fights. Uh, Marlon Harrington, you know, he's knocked out seven of his eight opponents. He started boxing late. But, you know, of the footage that I've seen of him, he looks very strong. Uh, he's aggressive and he can punch. Um, and, and he, he's he's going to lend himself to having a, an exciting fight. And I think this will be a very entertaining fight for our fans. He won the Detroit Golden Gloves and he went to the National Golden Gloves. You know, aggressive and fan friendly. Let's bring him on and let's see what he has. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned the sort of the from what I've seen of him sort of aspect, which I guess is a, is a big deal for you as the executive producer of Showbox. Sometimes you just don't know. You've seen a little footage here and there. In his case, maybe you've been impressed with what you've seen, but he's mostly been fighting certainly a lower level of opposition than, than Taylor. Do you sometimes go into these Showbox fights kind of worried that, you know, well, this guy looked good against sub 500 guys, but there's a chance he falls apart when we put him on, on Showbox Air. I guess how often does that sort of cross through through your mind when you're bringing yeah. someone on for the first time? Yeah, it'll it'll happen on every show yeah. because you know sometimes in Elvis Garcia, I know he's signed by Debella. I can look at all the stats and facts and look at the two bronzes and nationals and a silver and nationals, and I can see amateur footage. I've seen nothing as a pro. There isn't anything out there, but I do, I have an email into Sean Sullivan of D of Debella. I hope to get, you know, a, a copy of his last fight. Uh, you know, we 
ask for links of fights. We obviously have YouTube, but we can't always get them. And we have to sort of go with uh, the stats and facts that we know of them. And uh, But generally speaking, we'll see footage of, of most of them going right. into the fight. But to your point, yeah, I mean, you hope that the fights are going to be good. You know, you hope that the style matchups work, but can't say they always will. Right. All right. So moving on to the main event, this one, the fighters are at least a little bit more of a known quantity for us as Showbox viewers. Um, we have Isaiah Steen against Senna Agbeko, both fighters with whom Showbox audiences should be familiar. Steen is coming off a 15-month layoff since his Showbox win over Calvin Henderson. How did you feel about his performance in that close decision victory? And do you think Agbeko is a tougher test even than Henderson was, and, and thus possibly the toughest test of Steen's career so far? Well, again, just like Taylor, Isaiah Steen's coming back because of the victory over Calvin Henderson. And Calvin Henderson, as we recall, recently went on to get a title shot against David Morrell. Um, so Steen was, was and is, or was a blue ch chip prospect. Mm -hmm. You know, he had a hundred amateur fights, you know, he's a six year pro right now. Um, he's a very complete boxer. Um, you know, he's been 10 full rounds now with Henderson. So he's again, deserving of another look-see, uh, albeit he's been off for 15 months that does have some concern, um, you know, though he's, you know, he can box and he can brawl. Senna Beko, the only time we've seen him, but when we, you know, uh, he's big and he's strong, but he did face the world-ranked Vladimir Shishkin. And he basically may have gotten one round in a 10-rounder, but he did go 60 and nine in the amateurs. I mean, he's got 21 KOs and 28 fights, so he can punch a little. So he wasn't able to stop a world-class fighter. Um, I don't think we can categorize Steen as being that yet. And with the layoff, it could be, uh, you know, a, a good a good matchup and, and a fight for a Beko that he could possibly win because of his power and because of the layoff. And since his loss to um, Shishkin, he has had uh, three fights, winning all of them by KO. And his last fight, I must say, was against a 22 and one fighter. Hmm. So he's got momentum coming into this fight and confidence where Steen, we know he's talented. We know he's a blue chipper. We know his ceiling is high. But what is this layoff going to present? So one, I guess one of the running themes of what we've been discussing so far is these fighters who appear on Showbox perform well or at least interestingly enough that you want to see them again. And so Agbeko is, is sort of interesting in that he got pretty well dominated by, by Shishkin. Um, so in terms of bringing him back, how important is it that you saw that, I guess, you might not have been inclined to bring him back immediately, but then you see he has three more fights, just beat a 22 and one guy, as you said, that that I guess is a key factor in getting you to, to say, you know what, Senna Agbeko deserves another crack on Showbox as well. Well, in all honesty, we were going to have him fight Elvis Figueroa, who was 11 and 0, and that fight fell out. Mm, okay. So we were trying to work to 
get an, another opponent for Steen and, uh, you know, Egbeko, uh took the call and mm -hmm. uh, we're going to, uh, you know, not lose the lose a fight and an opportunity to see uh, Steen come back. But I hope and I do think that Egbeko will bring the fight and um, we'll see what happens. All right. Uh, so last thing, I'm curious what it's like for you being back at Bally's where it all began. Uh, did you find yourself uh, reminiscing a lot when you were there last month or has the venue and the boardwalk changed enough in 21 years that you were uh, able to mostly stay focused on the present? Well, I think it's always good to go back to where it all began. Mm -hmm. I mean, to think that it's over, you know, 21 years ago that we started with uh, Martin O'Malley, you know, taking on Leo Durin in a battle of unbeatens of which Leo Durin would win. And uh, of course, that's how we start. We want to have competitive matchups with top prospects. Leo Durin uh, won, would go on to win a world title and become the first of our 86 fighters that have fought on the series that have gone on to wor win world, world titles. And we saw a few uh, show boxers even last night with uh, Deontay Wilder fought on Showbox. Clarissa Shields fought on Showbox. Devin Haney fought on Showbox. And, you know, Clarissa fought on Showtime six times. Uh, Devin Haney fought on Showbox, you know, four times. So, um, you know, we've had, uh, you know, success. And uh, to think that we could go back to the place where it all started uh, just makes us all reminisce a little about, you know, it hasn't been a waste of time. Yeah, it certainly hasn't. And, and the the you really put it into perspective well there with earlier in the podcast, Kieran and I broke down all those fights from Saturday night that you were just talking about on three separate continents, three separate televised main events, and every single one featured a Showbox alum somewhere in, in the main event. Kind of remarkable statement about the importance that Showbox has in the uh, larger boxing universe. Yeah, well, it's good to, you know, we, we hope that the fighters that we bring to this series are uh, we hope that they're tomorrow's champions today? You know, <laughs> right. we, you know, they're not always going to be, but um, you know, we just—it's not without effort. Right. All right. Well, we will see if we are looking at some more future champions this Friday night at Bally's. Uh, thanks. Uh, thanks as always for joining us, Gordon. It's always great to uh, pick your brain and, and talk about these fights with you. Great. Thanks for having me. Okay, Kieran is back. Uh, boy, you have no idea the trash Gordon was just talking about you, but you, you'll hear it when the pod drops on he, Monday. He is renowned for that. Yes, he was merciless. He was, you'll, you'll, you'll hear it soon. All right. As always with Showbox cards, we make official picks for the main event only. I'm leading 70 to 68, meaning one fight where we don't agree could flip the standings. Let's see if this one has that potential. I'm up first. And certainly... I think Isaiah Steen is the higher upside fighter as compared to Sena Agbeko. That doesn't mean he'll win, of course. Uh, he could be both the higher ceiling guy and the lower floor guy, because with Agbeko, you pretty much know what you're going to get. Steen, he was inconsistent in the Calvin Henderson fight. Looked like a super talent with slick moves at times, looked flat at other times, got slightly wobbled at one point in the fight, but did certainly win it. I had him prevailing seven rounds to three. And I would think we're looking at something similar here. He should be a little too quick and skillful for Agbeko. I'm thinking this one goes all 10. And Isaiah Steen wins something like eight rounds to two. And and let's hope his stepbrother, Charles Conwell, 
is visible in the background in the crowd again. That was fun watching him react <laughs> last time. Uh, but my pick is Steen by unanimous decision. So uh, do you have an opportunity to make up any ground? I do not. But yeah. nor do you have an opportunity to to open up anymore. Um, yeah, very similar. Um, the notes I made here were... Look, we know Agbeko can crack, we know who he is, but he can be outboxed, he can be buzzed, he tried to open up against Shishkin, but was picked apart each time he did. Um, and I made the note here that, that Steen didn't exactly overwhelm me with his win over Calvin Henderson for the reasons that you said. It, it was just inconsistent and, and almost lazy at times. He, he, he looked excellent uh, uh, in spells but once he felt he was in control he cruised over the last couple of rounds and that could that could end up biting him if he were to try that against the higher quality opposition but he has the boxing ability he has the movement when he wants to he can step into his punches i i think it might be a little close early on as each guy tries to establish himself but ultimately i do see steen controlling it and maybe a smidge closer than you have it but i also have it as a unanimous decision all right all right, let's go through the news. Um, and for our main event this week, we don't have one singular massive story that stands out, but we do have a lot of fights, either announced or reportedly close. So let's combine those into our news main event. Two notable fights reported by Dan Rayfield, the coveted ESPN slot immediately following the Heisman Trophy presentation on December 10th. Looks like it will feature Teofimo Lopez taking on Jose Sniper Pedraza. Uh, and Dan also reports that on January 28th, 2023, God, we're already talking about that. At Wembley <laughs> Arena and on ESPN Plus, Artur Beterbiev will defend the lineal light heavyweight title against Anthony Yard, although Yard is scheduled for a November tune-up first. Um, two fights we've already spoken about now have official dates. Jose Cepeda versus Regis Progre is November 26th at Dignity Health Sports Park in Carson, California, and it will be a pay-per-view of some sort. And Noya Inoue versus Paul Butler is locked in for December 13th in Japan with ESPN Plus to televise. And lastly, Michael Condon's next fight is set. It's December 10th in Belfast in a 10-rounder versus Kareem Guerfi. Uh, Eric, which of those would you like to comment on? I'll note quickly on the Inouye-Butler fight that Inouye said this week it will be his final fight at 118 pounds. So then it's on to 122, and maybe, fingers crossed, maybe we can see him against Stephen Fulton. Um, yeah, that would be nice. Uh, speaking of fights that uh, I'm looking forward to, Zepeda Progre. Look, nobody is happy that this is going to cost them money and uh, be limited in audience as a result, but I will say... They found the right venue for this. This could yes. absolutely be an old StubHub Center style fight, and uh, and I don't know who to favor. Um, but the main fight here worth commenting on is Lopez Pedraza, which, again, not finalized or announced yet, but Dan says it appears headed this way. Top rank in ESPN had decided already the date would probably go to Teofimo, and apparently he had a few opponents to choose from. Arnold Barboza was considered. I might have slightly preferred that fight, but Pedraza is a little more of a known name. He's Puerto Rican, which doesn't hurt for selling tickets in New York. This makes sense, even though Pedraza is probably a bit past his peak and is coming off a draw against Richard Comey. The best thing for boxing would be if this fight puts all the shine back on Teofimo Lopez, if he really looks great in this one, mm -hmm. setting him up for major fights at 140 pounds in 2023. He lost one fight. He's still a star. Yep. He could still turn out to be a superstar. This is a fantastic opportunity to remind a large viewing audience what he can do. Yep. 
Uh, not much of a news undercard this week, but two other items worth addressing, both involving British boxing and both continuations of news items we've discussed recently. First, there's Connor Ben. The Daily Mail reported this week that he'd failed another drug test earlier this year, but Ben is denying it, and Eddie Hearn called the report rubbish. Meanwhile, the British Boxing Board of Control and UCAD have formally launched an inquiry into Ben's failed tests. The other news item involves Tyson Fury. The latest rumors have him facing Derek Chisora for a third time in December, completing a heavyweight trilogy to rival Holyfield Ruiz. Uh, <laughs> the word is that Fury will make a fight announcement this coming week. We'll see if Chisora is indeed the name he picks. Kieran, do you care at this point who Fury fights? And does this week's news on Ben diminish the chances we'll see the Eubank fight after all? Um, so to take Fury first, honestly, it feels a little bit as if he's been lined up to face Chisora all along. Um, during one of his I'm unretired announcements, um, before he suddenly decided to taunt Anthony Joshua, he, he even said as much, you know, when he, when he said it was like his mate from the down the pub was going to be his trainer and he was going to fight Chisora or whatever. Um, so that was about three unretirements ago. You might have forgotten. <laughs> right. Um, you know, and I don't know that anyone took him particularly seriously then, um, not least because it seems such an unlikely and unnecessary matchup. And I don't want to get all boxing truther here, but I almost wonder if part of me wonders if the whole business with Joshua was deliberately engineered to provide a rationale for Fury fighting Chisora. It isn't my fault. I tried to fight Joshua, but he's a sausage. That kind of thing. I don't know. <laughs> right. But um, Tyson's in for a bit of a disappointment, though, given he apparently said that the reason for wanting this is he wants to be the first heavyweight champion to fight two trilogies. So who wants to tell him? Who wants to give him the bad news? <laughs> not me. No, I'm not, not me telling either. him. Not me either. Um, as for Ben Eubank, yeah, last week I rather cynically wondered if the brouhaha would make the fight even bigger, but the British boxing public and the British boxing business has turned very strongly against Ben and against this whole episode. Um, and if any of this sticks, especially if he did indeed test positive beforehand, and like you say, he denies it. Eddie Hearn insists that folks should give Ben a chance to tell his side of the story and, and that their feelings about the whole situation will be different then. Then not only does that suggest the ban for Ben is likely and justified, it, it should also once again shine a light on the British Boxing Board of Control, which... I mean, I've talked about this before, but as far as I can tell from a distance, it's just this increasingly opaque body that operates in silence and at a snail's pace that delivers its pronouncements without explanation. And it's seemingly beholden to no one. It's like the Supreme Court, but everyone is Clarence Thomas. Um, <laughs> um, look, there are still some really serious questions to be answered. Did they allow a fight to go ahead after Ben tested positive before? If he did test positive before, they certainly have previous in that regard. You know, we mentioned the Dillian White Oscar Rivas thing, and it seems they were about to do so this time around uh, until the Daily Mail report came out and, and forced everything to happen. Um, I'm curious of well, whether Ben has requested his B sample to be tested. Um, not that that ever comes back differently, but it's generally the action of... Uh, at least somebody who's trying to protest and show some kind of innocence is right. to at least re request it. Has he provided an explanation of why he tested positive beyond the obvious? Um, right now, especially when it comes to drug testing, it just feels like the governance of British boxing is, is an absolute shambles. Um, and we're dealing with the lives of young w men and women here, and, and that just isn't good enough. Yeah, great. All right, let's wrap this up uh, with this week's top 
five lists. Um, last week, you asked me to list the top five active boxers who should get a shot at commentating. Um, and we agreed to exclude those who are doing so regularly or quasi-regularly already. So no right. Daniel Jacobs, no Chris Algieri, no Jessica McCaskill or Abner Mares, for example. Um, and so we found out with quite an eclectic list. Um, I don't know how we'll do this, whether you want to pause, after, you know, respond after each one. We'll see how it goes. Um, uh, but uh, anyway, starting from, because I don't have a huge amount to say about each one, but we'll see how it goes. Starting right. from fifth to first. My number five is Demetrius Andrade. Um, Andrade may not be the most exciting boxer in the world, but he's a great talker. Um, and whatever you think about how exciting or not he is in the ring, He's an intelligent boxer as well, which makes me think he'd almost certainly be not just an entertaining commentator, but probably a pretty interesting and astute one as well. So that's why I've got him in there. All right. I am definitely going to jump in here before you get any further, because uh, I vehemently disagree with this one. I find his oh, personality so grating and annoying. <laughs> he does seem an intelligent guy yeah. and, and well-spoken, but two, my two problems are I just find him corny and, and annoying in, mm. in his attempts to be personable and then on top of that i went to college in providence i've had my exposure to the providence accent and he has a really bad one and i just can't take it so he is nowhere near my my top five list oh well that case given that he's already incredibly divisive he's the perfect tv commentator <laughs> unboxing uh you might feel similarly about my next one i almost feel similarly about my next <laughs> okay. one. I feel a little dirty for saying this. Um, but at number four, I can't even believe that I'm doing it, actually. But I'm going to suggest Tyson Fury. I, I, um, I figured that was where you were going based on the way you were setting it up. Okay. Um, there is a very real danger that he would make it all about himself and spout all kinds of nonsense. But I also kind of have a feeling that he knows when to turn it on and when to turn it off and when to put it in a particular direction. And I think that if called upon to provide analysis of a fight in which he didn't have some personal stake, so no heavyweight fights involving the big four, the Joyce Wilder, Usyk or Anthony Joshua, please, because that would turn into a bit of a farce. Right. I like to think he'd focus on the task ahead of him. We know he's a good talker. Yep. And again, he's clearly a highly intelligent boxer. And he is the heavyweight champion of the world. There's something to be said about having the heavyweight champion of the world on the call. I feel dirtier suggesting it than I might have done a couple months ago before we've just been through the the annoyance of the Tyson Fury show. But I think he might be interesting. Yeah, it's an interesting choice. His name did cross my mind. I didn't put him on my list because I had some of the same hesitations that, that you did. I think he could be excellent at it if he is able to control his urges to be really annoying while, while doing it. <laughs> yeah. But but if the idea was these are people we want to see get a shot, absolutely I'd like to see him get a shot and possibly after one or two tries be like, no, never let him do that again. Or, mm. or it could be, wow, the, he was made to do this. He's the John McEnroe of boxing. His whole career was building toward him becoming a great broadcaster after his career. I, I would love to see him at least get a chance and see how it goes. Number three is a name that's super topical and possibly also one that um, is going to divide people a little bit here. And I would like to see what Clarissa Shields could do. Hmm. Um, 
You know, she's somebody who, you know, she frequently live tweets fights and, and how she thinks fights are going. And it's interesting. Sometimes I agree with her analysis. Sometimes I don't. But she offers her thoughts on what fighter A or fighter B is doing and, and how they should do and how a fight has gone. So she's clearly interested in, in doing that. She's grown from somebody who, when she first turned pro, was, was a little shy and quiet to a supremely confident and eloquent woman. I've always loved interviewing her. Um, and... You know, for the same reason, in the same way that Fury should get a shot because he's the heavyweight champ, who wouldn't want to hear from the quote? Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, so I didn't really put mine in a very careful top five. I came up okay. with a list of 10 that stand out, and I quickly threw together an order. But, you know, it's it's a very unofficial order that I did. But anyway, we're now three for three on you naming people who didn't even make my list of 10. But this is a good one. I just hadn't really given her proper thought, I guess. I do have one female fighter on my list that I won't say, just in case okay. maybe she's still to come on your list or something. But uh, Clarissa Shields is an excellent choice. She wasn't the first woman's fighter who came to mind for me, but I, I, I do think she could indeed be very good at commentating. Um, number two is someone I would never have thought about had we not interviewed him several times and found him so engaging, so friendly, such a good interview, one of our absolute favorites, and that's Gary Russell Jr. Yep, yep. Um, again, an extremely smart boxer. Uh, he's done plenty of work in the corner for his brothers. I've no doubt whatsoever that he could break down a fight extremely well, explain it extremely clearly. Um, the only problem might be getting him to commentate on more than one card a year. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but I, I think that would be, I think he'd be great, actually. Yeah, well, now we have some overlap because he's the one I put okay. in and in, in my unofficial number one spot. Yeah, okay. absolutely would love to hear him do it. He ha has the perfect profile for it. Good guy, well-spoken, really knows how to break down the technical aspects of what's going on in the ring. Uh, I think that could well be his next career. Uh, number one for me is Nonito Donaire. Um, hmm. Outgoing guy, often has plenty of smart things to say, talks really well, enjoys doing that he's a slam dunk hall of famer who's been in with all kinds of opponents uh, in all kinds of situations um he knows about knocking people out and being knocked out he knows about being at the top of the mountain and being in the depths of career despair he knows about being the front runner in a fight and having to dig one out he's got a vast amount of experience and knowledge to draw on and i think he'd be great at imparting that to an audience yeah great call i feel like an idiot for not thinking of him somehow somehow he didn't it didn't cross my mind um but absolutely uh he he is a great personality and a great talker and and makes perfect sense for this so uh yeah excellent choice for number one and absolutely should have been on my list somewhere had i thought of him um some of the other ones that i had uh i actually have a, a couple of women um one from last night alicia yep. baumgardner would be interesting and heather hardy i think would be pretty interesting um Jojo Diaz uh, feels like he'd be both have the the sort of on camera charisma and and the personality and the smarts to break down a fight. Um, young guys like Sebastian Fandora, another one of our favorites, Stephen Fulton, Brandon Figueroa might be interesting. Uh, not quite sure yet. Um, not entirely sure, but Anthony Joshua might be good. Mm. He is a good interview. He might be a bit Lennox Lewis-y. I'm not sure. Um, but I, I wouldn't mind uh, seeing how he did. Uh, either of the Calebs, Truax or Plan. Uh, Plan might be a little too surly, but uh, 
he has a wife in the business who right. can teach him the ropes. Um, and I will also say, if if he spoke better English, or if I spoke Ukrainian or Russian, <laughs> I would love to listen to Vasily Lomachenko mm. dissect a fight. I, I would pay money just for that. Um, and finally, a straight up cheat, because it doesn't fall into the category of what you asked me to pick. But someone needs to get our man Breadman Edwards a commentating gig stat. Uh, yes, uh, I, I certainly uh, second that uh, nomination. So th- I feel like this has got to be, of all the top five lists we've ever assigned each other, the least aligned we've ever been. Maybe just because well, this is so wide open. Yeah. Um, but, and, you know, other than me strongly disagreeing with Andrade, it's not like I disagreed with your picks. I just didn't have right. any, very many of the same ones. But so I'll just run down some of the other names that I had. Um, David Benavidez. I've always found him excellent. Mm. Like, what if we had him once or twice on the podcast. I can't recall. Yeah. But he was great on the podcast. Great whenever I've heard him interviewed. Um, the woman who's on my list is... Uh, Michaela Mayer, um, yeah, just because yeah. she was on Max Unboxing this week and she was great. Um, you know, some guests on Max Unboxing, um, one in particular, I see a certain face pop up on that show and it's uh, nope, not watching this episode, but she was good. I was impressed. I guess she's done a little commentary work here and there already, so maybe she should oh, okay. be disqualified. I'm not sure. I went ahead and considered her anyway. Um, Tony Harrison. Now, the one thing with him is he can stammer a bit, um, Mm. but he has a great personality for the gig. He was great with us. He really was. Yeah. Um, Another guy who was great on our podcast, Rai Salim, very personable. Erickson Lubin, same thing. Um, Joseph Parker, uh, just because we know he's got the personality from his videos that he did. That Um, was a mistake not having him on my list. Yes. Okay. Uh, I also had I had Jojo Diaz, who you mentioned, um, Regis Progre. I've never mm. interviewed him, but hearing him interviewed, he seems an mm. interesting guy. And the last one I'll mention, uh, you mentioned his brother. You mentioned Brandon Figueroa. I'm going to mention Omar Figueroa. Now, I guess technically he shouldn't qualify because he's retired. Um, and I did say active boxers, but he was active as of a couple of months ago. Right. And uh, I, I want to mention him here just to complete my epic Omar Figueroa 180 that I've done. <laughs> Amazing. Put him on this list. <laughs> I can't wait till he co-hosts the podcast. <laughs> just are, a matter of time. Is it, is it a, a three-person podcast, three-host, or you're saying I'm, I'm kicking you out and then replacing you with Omar Figueroa? The future is uncertain. <laughs> that it is. As Jim Morrison once sang. But okay. anyway, yes. Yeah, there you go. Of course, we only needed to differ on maybe one thing for it to be our most our most divergent <laughs> list point. ever. But, right. but yeah, but it was worth it just for your vehement opposition to Demetrius Andre. Yes, that, I, that I, made it right there. I'm very much opposed to that pick. Maybe, it th- maybe there's something going on where when you go to Iceland, when you get that far away from me, we stop sharing a brain. Maybe that's what's happened. Perhaps that's what it is. Perhaps yeah. that's what it is. I mean, if I go any farther afield, who knows what would happen? So, <laughs> all right, that will do it for this episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Uh, we'll both be back in the same country in the same time zone next week with our post-fight thoughts on the Showbox card. And we will look ahead to the Jake Paul Anderson Silver pay-per-view, as well as the aforementioned Vasily Lomachenko's return. Until then, thanks for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well. <laughs>